Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Last week, we looked at the conjunction of creation and resurrection faith in the experience of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And this week I want to build on that conjunction and describe that experience more completely. And so we'll read this parallel passage in Colossians 1, beginning with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There's so much in this passage, and I I just want to focus, though, once again on here is a depiction of creation, combined with resurrection. Christ is depicted as firstborn from the dead, simultaneous with creation of all things. He's the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. When I first became a Christian, I was actually a boy. I was about 13 in uh, Texas, 14. We, We had horses and we were out in the country and I would, on several occasions, I'd be on a long ride. Maybe even I went out for five days at one point. And I would just be out on the prairie all by myself, and then a thunderstorm would begin to roll in. And you could, Texas is, you know, the horizon is just sort of endless there. And I could see I'm surrounded by lightning and thunder, but it's still kind of at a distance. And rather than being frightened, it was kind of a a thrill. And I equated it in my young, immature mind with an experience of God. I could not name this experience, but I presumed it was the center of my newfound faith and that I was encountering God. Uh, in fact, that uh, so much so that I kept going out looking for God on the prairie in Texas, which many people would say that's the wrong place to look, but I think I found him there. Being young and having no name or developed understanding of Christian doctrine, I really had no way of putting flesh on the experience. And I thought it enough, I just tried to sustain it or reproduce it. And then as the years went by and I was taught, you know, in Bible college and seminary to be rational, uh, not to confuse my faith and my experience, I think I kind of whittled down my moments of bliss that I'd had. And I always think if I had been properly discipled, properly indoctrinated, 
I would not have been turned from these early experiences, which I do indeed think were experiences of God, but I would have been turned to exploring and understanding them more completely. Now, I don't mean that we can live in continual wonder and joy, but I think by putting a name and understanding to this experience, we can cultivate it. And we can say, what is an experience of God? We can describe that. There are experiences which have a particular quality. And that's what I think this passage is giving us here in Colossians. And I want to point out this quality of what it is to experience God. Paul says first that in him all things hold together. And I think that's partly what I was seeing, what I was experiencing. We might describe this as a kind of limit experience, you know, and there's a twofold limit in the description in Colossians. In the first instance, you know, a thunderstorm rolling in or even the resurrection faith, part of that is not completely positive. There is a kind of negative element to it. A limited experience is, you know, uh, you come up against a limit. It's feel, it's what it feels like to be undone, or that which maybe wrenches the subject from herself and throws into question. You know, we don't feel like a unified person. But of course, the limited experience leads to an experience of God because in Him all things hold together. We realize they don't hold together in me. And I think those two things go together. I don't have life in myself, but there's life in God. And so I think this negative realization about ourselves leads to a positive realization that in him all things hold together. And so it's a recognition of a unifying force greater than the self. And so the world and the self hold together in him. And so the specific, you know, the same thing here, the twofold element, as with Abraham, we come up against the limit of death. We realize, oh, just quite literally, I don't hold myself together. And we come up to the limits of creation, and we realize that there is a greater hand than we can comprehend at work. And so creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing and resurrection from the dead. I think they're very similar experiences. The resurrection faith is a realization of this encounter. And so Abraham and Paul, they're both describing simultaneous conclusions concerning death, creation. It says in Romans 4.17, I've made you a father of many nations. That is God who gives life to the dead, there's one, and calls into being things that do not exist. Existentially, we realize the latter, that God can call into things that do not exist in and through our resurrection faith. And so the capacity to believe God can call into being that which does not exist, I think it's a direct correlate to the fact that he gives life to the dead. And these two beliefs then are the new identity that we have. And point two here, this change of world, it's not simply a moral change, but it's a recognition about the world itself. I'm going to come to the moral. There's a moral aspect to it. But first of all, there is a kind of recognition of the fragility, incompleteness, the contingency, not just of ourselves, but of the world. Nothing has its actuality in itself. 
But it always receives itself. It's always created. We do not have our being or we, we all come from parents and there is a generation to everything. Nothing within the cosmos contains the ground of its own being. And so Paul, in describing this, it's not really a progressive revelation or a realization, but it's actually a juxtaposing of two ways of viewing the world, or even of two ways of knowing the world, two modes of identity. Paul is going to describe his own conversions as, as a world conversion. What the world that he used to live in is now set aside, and he describes that, his former self, his former notion of the law, his former goodness, he says is now a shame. And I think there is this moral realization, but there's a cosmic realization. And I believe this is typical in an authentic encounter with God, an experience of God. There is a relinquishing of a basis for explanation and the recognition of the hand of God directly at work. Imagine if we came to church one day and out in the field here, instead of a cow, there were a big 300 foot, I don't know, translucent ball. And we saw it and we would be surprised, you know, by the strangeness of it. We'd wonder, well, how'd that get there? And we would never be able to believe that somebody say, oh, it just happened. That, that didn't get it. You know what? It, without some possibility of explanation. And the idea, oh, it just happened, that's absurd, right? Balls, 300 foot translucent balls don't generally happen in the Missouri Prairie. But wait a minute, as we ask the same question, we could ask that question equally well about everything else in the pasture, right? The trees, the grass, the cows, the rocks. A tree or a, a rock is no less than, than the sphere in evoking that emotion, that wonder. And it only is because we're used to things. We're not, you know, to, we're used to the way the world is. We're not used to interrogating the origin of things because we're accustomed to them. We see rocks and trees and cows and birds every day, but they're no less wondrous, are they, than a 300-foot spherical translucent ball. And what would provoke our curiosity about that sphere, that ball, would be, it would be that it was obviously out of place. But as far as existence is concerned, everything, in a sense, is out of place. Right? You know, I think that describes Paul's conversion experience in part, that he's going to see the world in this wondrous sort of way. Think of his conversion on the road to Damascus, or think of our own encounter with God Certainly it pertains to matters of life and death, but in creation ex nihilo, or the idea that it pertains to everything. The question of why anything exists at all is one that points us beyond the reality of particular things and points us to the transcendent condition of reality. And when we recognize the strangeness of existence, it's almost paralyzing. You know, you can't do this all the time because 
the fullness of the experience. It just, in its immediacy, there is nothing to hold on to in the experience because the source of one's amazement, it's not some particular object among the world, but it's simply the pure eventuality, the pure existence of the world as such. I think this is what I felt as a boy on the prairie. I was just taken with the wonder of the world and that should have been cultivated and we need to cultivate that wonder. You know, we could describe this in scientific terms and this makes it a little flat. But as you go back in time and you approach the beginning event of the world, the normal scientific modes, the normal understanding, it breaks down. And I think that's what we're describing. The ultimate experience of nature is to take it in all at once. Either in the simple wonder at the fact that a world exists at all, or in recognition of creation from nothing. You know, it's like Paul is a Pharisee. We have to relinquish the notion of our previous understandings. We have to go from the mundane, you know, ordinary world around us and everything is thrown into question or open to wonder. And Paul's imagination, you know, I think as a Pharisee, remained bound to a kind of functioning in a pre-established legal field. But that describes all of us, doesn't it? A kind of Kantian a priori experience that the imagination is limited to things like the mundane world, the law, to a necessary and stable structures in the world. Because what I'm describing makes everything seem unstable. And then you think, well, that's just this the way our, our mind, you know, our, our thought about the world. It tends to be destructured by the world. But what we're describing is all the structures break down. I think that's an encounter with God. Now, there is a moral reorientation and that's here in the passage I didn't actually read this but if you go back to Colossians both before and after in verse 14 he says we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred us he's transferred us to the kingdom of his, of his son from darkness to the kingdom of his son and we have redemption the forgiveness of sins again think of Paul's conversion you know, I think we read this in a too simplistic way. We say, oh, you know, what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? He got some new information that he didn't have before. He met the risen Christ, and this was an answer to, you know, he had been troubled in his conscience, and he recognized that he can't keep the law. And that, that's what we normally read that story as. And actually what we're doing, we're reading Paul's conversion as if it was like Martin Luther's conversion. As if Paul had the trouble of Luther, who was indeed plagued in his conscience. And so Christ, you know, has meant the penalty of the law and made its payments. I think that's a complete misreading. And contrary to this typical depiction, Paul narrates his Christian understanding. He says, I was without fault when I was a Pharisee. He wasn't plagued by a guilty conscience. In fact, he had a clean conscience when he was arresting and killing Christians. He considered himself righteous, he says in Philippians. 
zealous beyond his peers and bearing the highest qualifications. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a really good guy. And there is no introspective, guilt-stricken conscience here. There is no notion of a failed works righteousness. In fact, any notion of an individually conditioned salvation is missing. Paul's Jewishness, his descent from Benjamin, his thorough Hebrewishness, if there is such a word, are not things he achieved, but he was just given these things. So my point here is that we're reading, we're misreading the conversion of Paul. Paul depicts a radical break with his former knowing. I think we have to undergo the same break in which one world is displaced to another. One world kind of melts away as we look at it and we're taken in with the wonder of it. Paul says, I've counted all of this, my Pharisee, you know, Hebrewishness, my law-keeping as a loss for the sake of Christ. He says, I count all things as a loss in this surpassing value. I think that's what we're encountering when we encounter God, a surpassing value that we never imagined existed. And he says that this is for, you know, Jesus Christ, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I count all things as loss. I count them as rubbish, he says. So there's no continuum of knowing, no building on the law. And there should be no continuum of knowing, I think, in our own encounter with God. There should be this one identity a place with another. And so Paul doesn't begin from what he knew as a Jew, his status as a Jew, but profit and loss and value are changed up completely. He says this former system, he actually uses a very strong word here, and we we don't use this word in church, but I'll give you the polite form of it. He says it's as so much excrement. That's really the Greek. Whatever he knew previously has been displaced. It's not been built upon. And this includes his ethical understanding. It's been turned inside out, this encounter with God. It's a complete moral revolution as well as everything else. And and listen to what I'm saying. It's not that, oh, he felt guilty and now he feels good about himself. No, he's displacing one moral system with another moral system. It's not, oh, I feel guilty because I've done bad things and now I met Jesus and I feel all right about myself. That's the way we usually read the conversion of Paul and that's the way we often practice our Christianity. But it's far from that narrative. Paul is completely positive in his status. He even glorifies in in this status. But he gives us a negative evaluation of this former condition. Once he knows Christ, he realized, oh, the law, his moral understanding, his very notion of good and evil, guilt and innocence, is undone. In his pre-Christian understanding, he's without sin, he says. I I was not aware of any sin. I was perfect in regard to the law. So Paul's problem is not that he discovered himself guilty, and in need of deliverance from God's wrath, Paul discovers he was completely deceived in regard to the law. And I think that's the picture in Colossians, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. 
And Paul has ascended, you know, in his own description, to the Jewish heights of understanding. It's not that he wasn't educated or intelligent. It means that the very meaning of good and evil is changed up. I think we have two Christianities that depict Paul's conversion in these two ways. One pictures it as a kind of continuum with what came before. Oh, he was guilty and now he has his guilt paid for. But in this new understanding of the conversion of Paul, there's also a reconception of a Christianity in which everything is changed up. Nothing is the same. Everything melts away in a true encounter with God. We can call this an apocalyptic understanding, a kind of cosmic recreation through resurrection. It founds a new form of humanity on a different foundation. And this is the way Paul continually describes it. There's the first humanity under the first Adam, and then there's the second humanity under Christ, who he calls the second Adam. There is a kind of futility, a lie. That's the word he uses in describing what went wrong with the first Adam. And the truth of Christ is not additional information it's an addressing of this lie, an undoing of the way that we used to live. It's a defeat of the prevailing darkness because of the light and a defeat of the reign of death through resurrection power. And that's the point here, isn't it, in Colossians. By him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That's the encounter with God. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things have been created through him and for him. In Christ we reimagine the world. All things were created by him, you know, in the heavens and on the earth. And so Paul and I think we need to reimagine a resurrected, a recreated humanity. This is what it means to talk about Christ as the head of the body, of a new humanity, the church. We live in a new way. It's a new way of understanding the world. It involves a new morality in which he's reconciled all things to himself. Let me close then. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, he's made peace through the blood of his cross. And that's the realization and recognition of a true encounter with God. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.